Hello and good evening and welcome to another episode of Religions, Regimes and Refugees and their Multicultural Mess and Secular Scam. Thank you very much for joining me today again. I am very, very honored to have you on board. Hello to all my listeners all over the world and especially in India. Uh, stay strong everyone. I hope you're doing well. I know this is a difficult time but remember we're currents and waves um, and a current a wave will come, go to the beach, come back and go back into the ocean. So the continuous waves, the waves never stop, currents never stop. So just because one wave comes and in, in, in you're going back and uh, you don't get what you want, it doesn't mean that you've lost everything. Uh, it is important to stay together, stay strong and heal. Uh, this podcast is about knowledge. Knowledge is the best way to heal and it is very, very important uh, for you to have this conversation. We're going to do something uh, today. We're going to talk about the Ottoman Empire. And uh, it's very important because we talk about modern-day Turkey, because the Turkey comes from the, modern, from the Ottoman Empire, or Turkey, Turkiye, as it's called now, because that's the actual word, the official word by the UN and used by uh, Turkey. Turkey was the English word uh, in their language. Um, Turkish, I'm guessing it's Turkey. Uh, so maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong, but uh, kudos to all of them. You've heard a lot about Erdogan, uh, their president, and uh, we do know that he is behind the Muslim Brotherhood, which is behind the violent protest and who's funding the protest in India today. Uh, they are the fifth caliphate. Uh, the Caliphate, the Muslim Brotherhood, is the one that has taken over the Islamic Caliphate from um, uh, from the Ottoman Empire. So before we've already done the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, we'll go back to some of the activities later on. But now we're going to go to the last Caliphate, uh, the Ottoman Empire, and give you some history about them. So to give you some context or brief window into who they really were, we have to go back to Central Asia almost a thousand years ago, a very volatile region known for brutal tribal warfare. In 1162, was born a son to a nomadic Mongolian tribal chief who could come, who would come to be known as the most powerful general to have ever walked the surface of the planet. His name was Temujin, which in Mongolian means iron worker. He would be the most iron-willed man that humanity has ever seen. His story and legend will be told for generations to come. And in the 12th century, in the harsh steppes that formed Central Asia, lived, he lived, they lived many nomadic tribes and Tatars, as well as several tribal Mongolians. In the east, we have the mighty Chinese empire. The Chinese knew one thing, that if these Central Asian nomadic tribes fought among each other, they would leave, Chinese, leave the Chinese alone. So they played a divide and rule and would employ and instigate the Tartars against their rival Mongolian tribes. Hence, as the BBC, uh, BBC documentary put it, the Eurasian steppes were a place of spiral of endless vendettas. It was these battles for revenge that at the age of nine, the young Temujin's father would be poisoned by a rival tribe, allegedly a Tartar. Um, a Temujin who was not present at his father's death, was called back in haste and was told by him, his mother in no uncertain terms, revenge. It is said that Temujin would later say how that day he ceased to be a child. Um, however, this transformation did not start off as planned. Temujin's tribe would desert his mother and desert his mother and siblings in the middle of the harsh steppes, thus abandoning them to live in the middle of nowhere. He and his family had to fight for survival all alone and was abandoned. He survived this ordeal, which would make him the man he, he was to become. He learned vital lessons in life uh, in those years and formed alliances. Around 19, he went on to marry a beautiful girl from another tribe, to whom he had been betrothed as a child when his father was alive. However, his wife was stolen by another rival tribe. Wife stealing was common in the Central Asian steppes. It was part of the spiral of never-ending vendettas. Along with this childhood friend, Jamuka, who he considered his blood brother, Temujin managed to win her back and she gave birth to their first son nine months later. 
However, no one would ever know who his real father was. Temujin would raise a child to be on his own, but he his his the but the paternity of the child would be a major source of contention later on in Temujin's life when it came to dividing his empire among his sons, an event that would have an impact on history. After the birth of his son Jamuka and Temujin would share uh, control of the tribes, uh, and no one would know who was the real chief. Uh, Jamuka, Jamuka was Temujin's friend. Um, although they were best friends, there were differences among them. Differences would eventually come to surface one day, and Jamuka would decide to lead the tribe with tribesmen who were loyal to him. Jamuka would attack the Temujin tribe. Temujin and his warriors were never prepared, outnumbered and outplayed in every sense. Thus, in the beginning, Jamuka won those battles. He would capture Temujin's soldiers and torture them to death. Temujin is said to have taken a vow um, then never to lose a battle again. Um, prior to the next battle, Temujin's forces gathered his forces, built a professional army, equipped them with artillery, trained everyone, including the, the children, it is said, and restructured them. They had speed, they were good horsemen, and were pinpoint archers. He broke down all old tribal and hierarchical bonds and structured his forces according to merit, thereby laying foundation for his next battle, but for his, not only for his next battle, but for his empire. He won his next confrontation with his blood brother in 1204. What Temujin did was not only win against Jamuka, but he won the administration and admiration and respect of all tribes of the Mongolian steppes. Jamuka, his childhood friend turned enemy, had to flee. However, Jamuka's generals betrayed him and turned him over to Temujin, who, in spite of their recent past, agreed to forgive his blood brother and be friends again like the childhood days. Jamuka, however, his honor on the line declined and asked one wish of Temujin, to give him an honorable debt. Temujin granted his childhood friend his final wish, then Temujin would go on to join all the tribes of the steppes and form one kingdom in 1206. He was given the title of Chinggis Khan, or Genghis Khan in English. Khan, which means leader, chieftain. Chinggis means universal. He was the leader that joined all Mongolia, of whom he was chief. He was like the sun with all Mongolians worship. As there is one sun, there was one leader. Many individual tribes were like the sun rays that were an extension of him and would bow down to him. He was the metaphor of the sun on earth, the embodiment on earth of that one great power, thereby giving him the right to lead not only all Mongolia, but the entire planet. Thereby giving himself the right to lead not only all... Sorry... Um, yes, thereby giving him the right to lead not only all of Mongolia, but the entire planet. Like the old saying, all roads lead to Rome. He did not mind if each individual followed his own interpretation of religion or God, as long as they, had, they were loyal to him. There were many rays of the sun which all finally led to that one power, the sun. Temujin, now Genghis Khan, was very spiritual, giving place to God, that which was important. He did not care about your tribal allegiance to surface, but rewarded loyalty and merit. He would promote soldiers <clears throat> who were capable, who proved themselves and rewarded achievement, which was new to Mongolia. Uh, Mongolia, where before Genghis Khan, you reached the top only if you were the son of a chieftain or royal lineage. A new mentality now in place, Genghis would now turn to conquer his enemies. He began by turning his attention to China, to the East and China. China, which for centuries had played a divide and rule game, fostered the spiral of endless vendettas in order to keep the Mongolians weak and prevent them from attacking the Chinese. Khan knew the Chinese would not tolerate a strong and united Mongolia, so he gathered an army, 50,000 men, well-trained, well-equipped and professional soldiers, and attacked the Chinese Empire at their northern border. He went around the Great Wall of China, through the Gobi Desert, and invaded his mighty neighbors, something no one had ever done before. 
He plundered villages and tribes on his way, striking fear among most Chinese people, and then reached, the Beijing, uh, reached Beijing and inhiliated the city, killing everyone and destroying everything on sight. It took him six years to complete his campaign to overcome the Chinese. Once the Chinese enemies, who played the divide-and-rule game among the Mongolian tribes for centuries, were subdued and overcome, he then built upon um, and secured his empire through administration, knowledge, and learning. He built the city of Karakum in central Mongolia, where he employed the artisans and scholars and physicians he had captured from the Chinese as well as far-reaching points from the outside of the empire. He got them to teach the nomadic Mongolians about art, philosophy, culture, astronomy, medicine. He also got captured soldiers and generals to teach Mongolians the art of warfare and military technology. Karakum was a melting pot of cultures. He got all his edits and judgments written down and inscribed to form the first legal code for the Mongolian steppes. He ordered the death penalty for murder and theft and forbid anyone from owning a Mongol slave. Something very similar to the colonial empire of Islam, whom he would run into years down the road. He was a great administrator and statesman. He wanted peace, so he created ambassadors. He, cre he created what we know today as the Pony Express, creating staging posts called Yam a sort of supply route messenger system. He developed trade routes and assured its security. However, peace was not always reciprocated. One trade journey in, in 1218, one of his ambassadors was killed and history would never be the same again. His head was supposedly sent in a package to Genghis Khan. Not impressed, Genghis Khan sent another ambassador who was assaulted too. The insult to his honor was not taken lightly. He is said to have gathered an army of up to 20,000 troops um, and marched west to the desert, to the Daria River, which was the eastern border of the Kavarizin Empire. That's K-W-A-R-Z-I-A-N. He ordered every Persian town to submit to his army. Those who did not obey his order were burned to the ground. Destruction inflicted by Genghis Khan was, ne was not... Uh, was never seen to such an extent before. He is believed to have said, I am a punishment from God. If you have not committed, if you had not committed such grave sins, God would not have inflicted such a punishment on you. He destroyed and captured Persian strongholds of Samarkand and Bukhara. For every town that was captured and inhiliated, several others surrendered in fear. On their return back to Mongolia, it is said to have left one flank of his army go west and see if they would be stopped. They were not. His army even ventured into Europe and then headed home. His empire was four times the size of Alexander and twice the size of the Roman Empire. A short while later, after another conquest to China, Genghis Khan breathed his last. He was buried in a secret location, still unknown even today. The people who buried him were supposedly killed, and the people who killed uh, them were killed too, to keep safe the location of the burial. 800 years later, his legacy lives on, and he is called the founding father of the modern state of Mongolia. His empire was divided by his sons into different parts. Some of his descendants would go on later to join the Islamic empire, some the Buddhist, and some converted to Christianity. From this region, we get the Seljuk Empire, originating in 1007 AD and ending in 1194 AD. The Seljuk Turks were Sunni Muslims from the Quinquic branch of the Oguzuk Turks. That's Quinquic, Q-U-I-N-I-Q. -I -I Sorry for the pronunciation. You know, I'm bad at it. So, Q-U-I-N-I-Q -I -I branch of the Oguzuk Turks, O-G-H-U-Z. They would go on to conquer an area from Central Asia, the, the Aral Sea, to the Hindu Kush mountains in modern-day Afghanistan, and Pakistan to the Levant, encompassing West Anatolia and encircling the Persian Gulf. They, were first, in, they first invaded Khorasan, then advanced into mainland Persia, and would eventually occupy 
eastern Anatolia. By the 13th century, the power of the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum slowly waned. Anatolia, or Asia Minor as we sometimes call it, was divided into a mosaic of independent Turkic tribal groups known as Anatolian Beyliks. These uh, these Beyliks are on the frontier regions of the Byzantine Empire is the region of Bitnia. Sorry, that's Bitnia. Um, in the region of Bitnia was a tribal group led by an Osmanli tribesman called Osman. Osman's early followers included both Turkish tribal groups and Byzantine rebels. Um, thus we've come to the main subject and that of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, they have another name in, Tur in Turkish, but it's too long and tongue-twisting. I'm not going to say it, but let's just say in English, the Ottoman Empire, or Osmanli Divliti. Founded at the end of the 13th century, that's 1299 AD, Osman is a Turkic word for the Arabic name Uthman. Okay? In English, often re referred to as Ottoman. Osmanli in Turkic basically means refers to the tribal peasant followers of Osman, their leader. The word Turk was used to refer in turn to all peasant and, and rural population that lived in on the Anatolian plateau under Islam. Thus there were nomadic tribes that moved from the plateau to the plateau culminating lives, cultivating livestock and, and tending to their herds. Turk was a negative term not originally used by the upper class, urban and military class of people who refer to themselves as Rumi, descendant of the Romans. Um, so Turk, the, if you said Turk in, in, in olden days, it was referred, it meant peasant and rural population who lived on the Otto, uh, Anatolian plateau under Osman. And they were, it was a negative term, not originally used by the upper class of the Anatolian plateau. Um, the upper class referred to themselves as Rumi, or descendants of Romans, the Turk, Turkish word for Roman, the inhabitants of the Byzantine Empire and the Balkans and, the, and Anatolia. Osman the was the leader of the Ogus Turkic tribe. Ogus is the common Turkic word for tribe. Um, they were situated in what was modern northwestern Turkey. It is said to that the Os Osmans uh, that uh, Osman's father originally fled this, the Central Asian steppes, where he was chased by a herd of Mongols and settled as refugees on the Anatolian plateau. So very much like Babur, the Mongol, the uh, Mughal em emperor, um, Osman too was uh, Osman's father was chased away and he became a refugee uh, in in Anatolia, which is exactly what. Um, Babur was uh, a refugee. As the, as the power of the Seljuk Sultanate declined, they formed a maze of several Turkic tribes and clans in what is today northwestern Turkey. One of these tribes was a clan commanded by Osman, the August Turkic leader. From the east, they were constantly attacked by the Mongol herds and descended onto the Mongol and descendants of the Mongol Empire of Genghis Khan. In the west lied the Byzantine Empire, formerly mighty but now greatly weakened. Osman was a charismatic leader, a man of the people. As his military success grew, more tribes joined him. A string of military success led to the Mongols finally retreating. Osman turned his attention to the Byzantine Empire, which was in turmoil. In the spring of 1302, unusually heavy rains in the Sakarya Valley flooded the rivers and rendered the fortifications by the Byzantine useless. The Osman walked right, in, right through the valley and invaded. There was a leadership vacuum in the Byzantine Empire around that time. The Osman rode right through into the vacuum and took over the Byzantine Empire. It is said that Osman wanted to spread Islam, but later research showed that he wanted more to loot the riches of the Byzantine Empire as in totalitarian power. A key word that man has been ever a key word that man has been after ever since time 
immemorial. However, you see, Islam itself is a colonial empire. Um, an empire commenced by the Arab clans to colonize other Arab clans, capture and loot, in order to be able to conquer lands, civilizations, for wealth and money, acquire slaves, women, and all vested interests of their leadership. God who is used as a screen to camouflage the wasted interest of military rulers and leadership. An institutionalized feudalistic colonial empire of brute force and violence all in God's name, a blueprint for power. The opposition was called infidels of God. Since the ultimate goal was subjugation of the enemy came from God, it was easier to mob mobilize tribal nomadic warriors to arm them and to indoctrinate them to rise up and conquer enemy lands, which would be looted and ripped off all in the name of God. So it was easy for these Turkic nomadic people to absorb Islam and use it to the fullest use. It fit the, their nomadic arid desert, survival of the fittest lifestyle and Central Asian heritage perfectly well. Now all they had to do was to invoke God and invade enemy territories until the invasion was submitted. If you notice, it's not very far from the ideology of Genghis Khan, from whom most of them have descended, at least in ethnicity, and hoped to humiliate, um, except now they had different labels. Osman and his followers were officially Sufis, it said. Sufism is supposed to be a mythic, mystical sect of Islam, which believed all other practices in dancing to get a, into a trance and connect with God. It did not involve going to mosques and institutions, at least in ancient times. Some people say that the Sufis were by and large peaceful, but we forget that the definition is meant for Sufis of today. In the past, Sufis were fanatical warriors and plundering, raiding, looting everything on sight. Osman was a Sufi. He believed that he was divinely chosen by God to conquer the world. No different from Genghis Khan and founders of all empires. Uh, during the next quarter of the century, Osman plundered the neighboring countryside and territories, subjugating its population. Islam says um, he was very tolerant leader as he let the natives of the conquered lands keep their religion as long as they paid tribute. Typical Islamic hypocrisy is more like it. You see, when one invader conquered another man's territory, he was always in a minority. So if they converted the natives, there would be chaos. Unnecessary havoc played out and the new leader would not be able to rule. There would be constant struggles. This is besides the fact that the new group of occupiers would be new to the land, hence they would not be aware of the surrounding areas and how to management. manage it. They would need all the help of the local people, who would get a cut or a commission of the loot or tribute if they cooperated with the new leadership. But slowly over the years, once the invaders settled in, they would form partnerships and alliances with the local feudal lords, the mafia, and agreed the power sharing as long as they got tribute. The clergy would then indoctrinate the locals, economically strangle them, isolate them, and slowly convert them to their religious empire of peace. Again, this was done by all empires without exception. Thus conquer, tax, and later convert. While Osman and his descendants originally let people keep their native religions, it meant he actually he meant he actually let people keep their ways based on what they could contribute to the Ottoman Empire in terms of tribute, or jizya, and slaves. Women, concubines, soldiers to the army, and leadership, and so on. Remember, you cannot take a Muslim slave or a harem girl, so it's necessary to keep them as captured citizens of their colonies as they found them, a reason which allowed Ottomans to pluck them from their nest and use them as concubines and sex slaves. Their so-called tolerance culminated into what we call ethnic cleansing of the Armenian and Yazidi people towards the end of the empire, in a final act of revenge and retaliation. This is besides the fact that the Ottoman massacred, massacres included all, among others, their fellow Muslim Sunnis and mostly Shias, some of whom swear today that the Ottomans were to them 
what ISIS is today. In 1324, Osman's son carried on with his father's imperial legacy. Orhan, unlike his father, who just wanted to rally his nomadic tribes for survival and was content with raiding towns and villages. Orhan wanted war and a massive... Um, that was, sorry, Osman, okay? Osman only wanted just... was content with raiding towns and villages. Orhan, his son, uh, wanted war and a massive empire. It was under Orhan that the Ottoman Empire ceased to be a vassal state of the Seljuk Turks and became the empire we have come to know today as the Ottomans. He conquered major towns and cities, which was once nomadic. Orhan and his, and then Orman and his, Orhan and his tribal followers would take over. Bursa, the Byzantine town, was made his capital in 1326 from where they ruled. Um, there, the nomadic Ottomans had to learn about rural, um, urban life, culture, civility, and from, and from these now conquered kingdoms of the empire. The Ottomans went on to control trade routes. That was a force to reckon with. More and more warriors and tribes started joining them. To the west, the Byzantine Empire was crumbling. The Civil War of 1314-1341 to 1347 that ensued, left a vacuum and reduced to rubble the last resources of the Byzantine Empire. The auxiliary armies of the emirs of the Turkish principalities were frequently called over and employed in Europe. In 1346, the Emperor John VI, Cantacuzin, recognized Oran as the most powerful sovereign of the Turks. He aspired to attach the Ottoman forces permanently to his interests and hoped to achieve this by giving his second daughter, Theodora, in marriage to their ruler, despite differences of creed and disparity of age. Um, the splendor of the wedding between Orhan and Theodora um, at uh, Silvery or Sel Embria is elaborated, dis elaborately described by Byzantine writers. The splendor of the wedding between the Ottomans and Theodora at Silvery is a, sorry, is elaborated, elaborately described by Byzantine writers. However, this close relationship soured when the Byzantines suffered from marauding migrant Turkoman bands that had crossed the Marmara Sea and, and pillaged several towns in Thrace. After a series of such raids, the Byzantines had to use superior force to deal with them. After a series of such raids, the Byzantines had, um, uh, they were not happy with, um, they were not happy with Orhan. Uh, but Orhan had the upper edge, uh, consolidating his power and taking over the Byzantine Empire. Um, he died in 1362 as a after a 36-year reign and consolidated the Ottoman Empire from nomadic tribesmen to an empire. His son Murad I took over and further expanded the empire. He pioneered what is known as now famous but generally scourged military cops as the Janissaries. This was a scourge of the Balkans until they were abolished in 1826. Uh, the Janissaries was no different than what I would call the Portuguese Inquisition or the Spanish Inquisition. On the same lines, not exactly, but their children of these slaves were taken over and made into a taken in and converted to Islam and brought up as Islamic people and used as military um, units all over the empire. Um, under Murad I, a young Christian, young Christian boys were taken from the empire, mostly from the Balkans at a young age, and dragged from their homes, enrolled in a sort of military training school. Some were as young as 11 and 12. They were converted to Islam, brainwashed, and taught the Quran, Arabic and Persian, the sciences, and then given military training. They were the elite infantry units that formed the Ottoman Sultan's household troops and bodyguards. After their service to the Sultan, they returned home to governors and elite administration officials in the empire. 
Turkish historians like to add that while in the beginning these boys were taken against their will from their families, later on these families, seeing the career opportunities and possibilities for these janissaries, agreed to give up their sons off at their own free will. I wonder if modern Turkish families would allow their sons to be taken from their families, or Erdogan would let, let his grandchildren be taken from his family and taken somewhere else. I don't think so. But hum humans are the same, whether you go a hundred years, a thousand years ago, and today a mother is a mother, is a son is a son. And you take someone's son, tomorrow someone will take your son. Unfortunately, uh, typically Islamic self-indulgent tolerant hypocrisy. I do not see any mother or parent giving up their sons to an autocratic ruler who occupies their land through invasions, then agreeing to let them convert their sons to another religion. I would like to see if the Muslim mothers of today would allow their sons to be taken by invading armies, converted, indoctrinated, and forced to work for a ruler that occupies their land. But hey fellas, this is the religion of tolerance and peace for you. So uh, let's continue. I wonder why they did not take young Muslim or even Turkic nomadic boys to fight for their janissary crops, but instead choose infidels. Did they trust their own? So over the next 600 years, fortunes of the Ottoman Empire rose and fell with 36 sultans in total, plundering, capturing, taxing, and proselytizing like their Bedouin ancestors. They conquered parts of Europe, the Balkans to the west, North Africa to the south, North Africa to the south, Arabia and to the east, and they even reached India, all sanctioned by Islam, which was their blueprint for feudalistic power sanctioned by God. This included capturing Constantinople in the spring of 1453. This turned the Greek Orthodox Cathedral, the Hagia Sophia, into a Turkish mosque solidifying the Turkish rule in Constantinople. Mehmet, the Ottoman sultan who led the siege, ordered the city to be plundered for three days. During his time, widespread persecutions of the city's civilian inhabitants took place, resulting in thousands of casualties, rapes, and forced distortion, deportations. Uh, this part I got from Wikipedia. Uh, Mehmet could... would go on to rebuild and refortify Constantinople and re-solidify the empire, consolidating and controlling trade routes. They took over the Byzantine civilization, their arts, architecture, philosophy, knowledge, absorbed it and rebranded it with Ottoman name, very similar to what Genghis Khan did with the Karakurum in the 14th century. In Constantinople as a centerpiece, rebuilding the empire required money. The primary source of which was conquering Christian lands, slaves, taxing its citizens, and controlling their trade and trade routes. It became the golden age of the Ottoman Empire. Mehmed died in 1481, after which there existed not one peaceful period by his successors. The religious branch of the Ottoman Empire resented Mehmed's interference into religious affairs and tried after his death to get back control of the empire, forced a more orthodox version of Islam. The civil war of succession that ensued with generations to come endured the decline of the empire eventually. With each sultan who ascended the throne, several of his family members had to be put to death. Their sultans did not stop the killings of their own family. They did what Muhammad would have never sanctioned them to do. They invaded and colonized other Muslim countries. By 1517, the Arab world, including Syria, Palestine, the Arabian Peninsula that included holy cities of Makkah and Medina, were under Ottoman rule. This allowed the then, the then Sultan Salim to become the Caliph of Islam. Successive Sultans uh, of, from Suleiman the Magnificent captured and expanded the empire enslaved women, mostly from Christian Europe, for their harems and sexual escapades. This gave them steady supply of princes mothered by their harem women, women who were Christian women, slaves converted to Islam and schooled in the Quran, and their now Byzantine heritage, rebranded as Islamic sciences. But at one point, they were not 
there was not much more to conquer. The Europeans strengthened their kingdoms and the northern and the north and pushed back the Ottomans. By the 17th century, the Ottomans started a slow decline into oblivion by not meeting the challenge of change and evolution. By the 18th century, it was pushed back and had to face invasions of Russian Catherine the Great and Napoleon. The Ottoman Empire was founded on conquest and tax revenues it had from its vassal state and empires. Now with the empire shrinking and in decline, it would not generate revenues. Spend without money, uh, corruption set in uh, and into the administration. The Europeans also found new trade routes, thus bypassing the Ottoman Empire and depriving it of all its revenue precisely generated from the source. The Ottomans also failed to modernize its society. In 1876, it declared a bankruptcy. At the beginning of the 20th century, uh, infighting and corruption had taken its toll. The Balkans had broken away with a surge of nationalism. Many states uh, conquered by the Ottomans over a 600-year period broke away from the Ottoman Empire, with the exception of the Armenians. From 1894 to 1923, through World War I, as revenge for their crumbling empire and to keep whatever little they had left, the Ottoman Turks committed a genocide of 1.5 million Armenians, or Greek Orthodox, Christians, Yazidis, to rid them and eth ethnically cleanse them of the Anatolian Plateau, where they had lived for 3,000 years. This compared to the Turks, who had been there from the 13th century only, as refugees from Central Asia. They who originally, like I said, came as refugees to flee their Mongolian tribes themselves. Thus ended another chapter in Islamic colonial imperial politics, all sanctioned by the divine intervention of Allah. As one can see above, the Ottomans were nomadic warriors, tribes who moved from one region to another in search of food, water, and to graze their cattle and military holds. War was their full-time employment. Their nomadic tribes and clans are what one would call in, modern, in the modern world small business and enterprises. As the generations passed on, they would hand over their clans and tribes to the next generation who built these movements. The clans, tribes grew into small kingdoms, sultanates, and finally empires. As the cycle turned, the empires finally crumbled and died. The relics of these empires, as in their modern-day cultural and divine departments, are open for business. They need our human capital to resurrect their empire. Hence, <clears throat> they change history, play the holier-than-thou card, Oh, we have great cultural and heritage card. They constantly pump us with, pump us to self-convince ourselves that their twisted history and ideological lessons um, are worthy worthy of our attention. Does anyone, does anyone even verify their history and their ideologies? We are told to submit in silence as their history was set in stone, sent from the heavens. So let's briefly take a look at the Ottoman Empire and their architectural heritage. Their Ottoman sultans were illiterate people. They may have been a few who were knowledgeable in theology, but they were definitely well-versed in Islamic theology, uh, Arabic and Persian languages. But that was that. After all, these were the same Ottoman colonial empires that disallowed the printing press. How on earth... Were they going to have literate people? While the printing press comes to light with comes to light with wood block printing, sometimes in the six in six BC and three three BC, in India we have proof that it existed around the tenth century. In China, an ancient Buddhist text known as the Diamond Sutra was created in eight sixty eight AD during the Tang Dynasty. In China, um. Research shows metal movable type printing was developed independently in Korea in the 14th century. A Korean monk named Bagan is credited for printing a compilation of Buddhist sayings using movable metal type. However, this method did not catch on in Asia, but by the 15th century it was taken over by Europe. 
They took a giant leap forward when a German by the name of Johannes Gutenberg, a goldsmith and craftsman from Strasbourg, Germany, first began experimenting to bring about more efficient methods of printing. The movable types saw the light of day in 1439. The Ottoman colonies that were aspect of life was controlled by its theologians, declined to use the printing press. They hindered its use, saying it was invented by infidels and therefore a sin against Allah. And that was the calligraphist who produced the holy books. Um, and that the calligraphist who produced the holy books might run out of business. As a result, Muslims of the Ottoman Empire were kept in ignorance and fed rhetoric controlled only by their theologians, thereby making sure that their ideological slave masters controlled their mind and occupied rent-free space in their heads, thereby guaranteeing them a steady source of income, which is exactly what the descendants of the Mughal Empire do today in India. You see, they're cousins of the same father. If ever uh, the Muslim congregations of the empire were educated, they were able to read the books not controlled by the theologians, all control would be lost. Uh, this is the sa very same thing that happened in Christian kingdoms and Hindu kingdoms, where only the pundits were learned and the masses were kept illiterate. This happened in all empires where only feudal elite were given access to the knowledge to wield control of their subjugated masses below. This is where we get the class and the caste system. Hence, the congregations of these empires got left behind. The same time, the Greeks, the Jews, the Armenian communities within the Ottoman Empire all used the print, printing press. In 1493, there were Jewish printing houses in Thessaloniki. The Armenians opened one in 1567 in Istanbul. Um, the Greeks in 1627. They were books in Arabic, Farsi, Turkish, printed by the printing press and sold in Ottoman territories, but only if they were printed in Europe. A decree was signed by Sultan Murad III in 1587, then allowing the same. It was only under Sultan Ahmad III during the Tulip era where the first printing press by Muslims was established by Ibrahim Mutuferika in 1727 for non-religious books. The first book printed was a two-volume Arabic-Turkish lexion titled Vankulu. It was finally Sultan Mahmud II who allowed for religious books to be finally printed during his reign. All this and the Islamic Ottoman Empire takes credit for great architecture and arts and heritage that it proudly shows off today. If you are not able to read and write except theology and its rhetoric, how do you produce great palaces and architectural marvels? Or are, were they really the Ottoman or just Byzantine architecture that was rebranded by the Central Asian nomads? Uh, so that, my friend, is a little bit on the Ottoman Empire, how they started in um, Central Asia. What, uh, well, Central Asians, and then the descendants went on to, to, to uh, uh, the, the descendants of Central Asia then came down and formed the different empires. Uh, I'm going to give you now um, the architectural monuments under scrutiny uh, of the Ottomans, or in Turkey today. The same thing as uh, the Mughals did in, in Asia. And you will see how uh, both these Central Asian uh, tribes, uh, kingdoms, or empires invaded their respective countries and colonized lands, took over architectural monuments that already existed and rebranded them as theirs. And it's the same currents that form the waves in Hindustan. So listen carefully, take down notes, um, and here we go. So the first one, the Haji Uzbek Mosque, built in 1333 AD in Iznik. It was the first important center of Ottoman art built two years after the conquest of the area. The nomadic Ottomans had to learn about urban and cultured life from their conquered civilians. So two years earlier, these were just nomadic people. They had no knowledge. They were tribals. They lived in tribes and went hunting from one side to the other, plundering and, and killing. And two years later, they were building this huge mosque. 
So how did the tribal warriors go from unruly tribal warfare to building a monument like the Haji Mosque, Uzbek Mosque? Was it, or was it just a Byzantine monument that was converted? The Grand Mosque of Bursa, groundbreaking in 1396, completed in 1399. Even today, one cannot build a huge structure like a mosque of Bursa in three years. Um, this is besides the fact that the Osmanli Turkic was formed at the end of the 13th century by a Central Asian nomad who fled their native lands, thus settling in the Anatolian plateau only 100 years earlier. The mosque has 20 domes and two minarets built in Seljuk style all in three years. Really? No, it's a Byzantine monument. Sorry, fellas. The Bazid Mosque, that's B-A-Y-E-Z-I-D, Bazid Second Mosque, groundbreaking in 1501, completed in 1506, located at the Bayezid Square area in Istanbul, Turkey, near the ruins of the Forum of Theodosius of ancient Constantinople. The interior of the mosque mimics the Hagia Sophia on a smaller scale. Again, five years to build this entire complex. No, my friends, this also, the, ba the Bayezid Mosque is also a previous Byzantine monument. The Fate Mosque, built in 1463 to 1470 on the site of the Church of the Holy Apostles. The original complex was said to be unprecedented in size. It was included, included well-laid buildings constructed around the mosque. They also included eight madrasas, a library, a hospital, a hospice, a lodge or a hostel, market, hammams, private primary school, public kitchen, which served for food of the which served food to the poor. All this in seven years to build. No, my friends, no, this is not. A faith mosque was not Islamic. It's more like it was the Church of the Holy Apostles just rebranded as a mosque complex. It was partially destroyed in several earthquakes dating from 1509 uh, itself and is said to have been rebuilt differently since 1771 AD. This, when the Ottoman Empire was on a slow decline into financial problems due to its colonies breaking off and Europeans pushing back. Declining tax revenues, which were really the main source of income, is not a good backdrop to convince future generations that Ottomans undertook this vast construction. The more they likely repaired, they more than likely repaired the original church over and over in building a new one. So the fifth, the Topkapi pal Palace, which is a beautiful palace, uh, meaning meaning a new place in Turkish. Topkapi meaning new place. It's a large museum, but originally a palace. Construction began in 1459, just six years after the invasion, and subsequent occupation of the Anatolia modern of Anatolia in modern, now modern-day Turkey. It was called a new palace to distinguish itself from the old palace of the Bayezid Square, which is in reality the square, um, which is in reality the square of the former site of the Forum of Theodosius built by Constantine the Great. Why were the Ottomans built in a square that already had palaces? Did they really build a palace or renovated an old palace in an Islamic art stru structure, thus giving them reason to baptize its new palace? The palace was expanded over the centuries, but the Central Asian Ottomans had nothing to do with it, in my view. Any credit for building the palace and the knowledge and engineering it took to construct the structure goes to the Anatolians, who were part of the Byzantine and the Roman Empire. So... It's not Islam that constructed it. It's not the Ottomans. It's it's more like it's the more likely the Anatolians who were already part of this land uh, and who had to were obliged to become part of the Ottoman Empire. So uh, we have uh, six tile kiosk built in fourteen twenty. 72, that's 1472, 19 years after the Ottoman invasion of Constantinople. A pavilion just outside the Topkapi Palace. It is said to not have any Byzantine influence, but Persian. During my research, I saw major artwork entrusted in the walls called Basin, Basin, 
uh, of the tile kiosk. This artwork was peacock depicted in copper setting on the walls. This is really Persian art as Persian occupied previous Buddhist and Hindu kingdoms, from which it gets its art and heritage. Hindus and Buddhists use peacock as native to the subcontinent. Uh, today it's called the Ottoman Islamic art, but it's exactly the opposite. Ottomans do not use, Islam does not use uh, peacocks. Peacock is very Buddhist and very Hindic. It's very Vedic. The arch is a depiction of lotus petals. This pavilion surely already existed prior to the invasion of the Ottomans and would have been renovated and remodeled and reused by them. No issue with that. It is said that the Ottomans integrated soup kitchen, baths, hospitals, Islamic madrasas to these palaces. How come these Central Asian nomadic people did not have all of this architecture, hospitals and baths prior to invading Anatolia? They were living as nomadic tribes and mountain dwellers prior to the invasion. They had nothing except a spiral of violent vendettas brought with them to Central Asian steppes. Thus nomadic Ottoman invaders had to be taught urban life and civility and, um, from their native Anatolian population. Um, how did they produce this architecture in 100 years or maybe the natives have al who had already produced it and they just rebranded it. So you see another one of um, rebranding, which is very, very typical to this, uh, to this colonial uh, empire. The Yezil Mosque number seven, inscription dates 1378 to to 1391 AD. In 1299, the Ottomans were considered as tribal uh, Anatolian Beyliks. 80 years later, they built the Yezil Mosque. Not possible, my friends. You can't build a mosque 80 years after you were um, considered as tribal people. The Suleimani Mosque. Inscriptions show groundbreaking in 1550 AD and completed in 1557 AD. Seven years built in um, on the others of Suleiman the Magnificent. Uh, it's a massive religious complex, better known as Suleimania. Suleimania, it mixes Islamic and Byzantine architectural components. Uh, the original religious complex consi consisted of the main mosque, hospitals, primary schools, baths, uh, caravanserai, four Islamic madrasas, specialized school for learning the Hadith, a medical college, an emirate or public kitchen, now a noted restaurant which serves food to the poor, many original structures still built, all built in seven years. Sultan Suleimani and his wife Huram, uh, Huram Sultana and, Ar and architect Sinan have their own mausoleums within the compound of the complex. Um, the Blue Mosque and the Suleiman Ahmed Mosque. The most beautiful, the most important mosque in Istanbul, constructed near the Byzantine Hippodrome, built by Sultan Ahmed between 609 and 1616, facing the Hagia Sophia. Its architect was a student of great Turkish architect Mimar Sinan. Like all other mosques, it's a religious complex consisting of the main mosque, Islamic uh, religious schools, madrasas, public baths, caravanazi, uh, bazaars, hospice, emirate, or public kitchen. It has, five, it has five main domes, six minarets, eight secondary domes. The story behind the mosque is that after every 15 after the 15-year wars between the Ottoman Empire and the Habsuk monarchy on 11 November 1606, a peace treaty of Zivatorak was signed between the two sides, Sultan Ahmed I and Archduke Matthias of Austria. The Ottomans underwent a crushing loss in the war. After the war, however, in order to assert his authority on the empire and not lose faith, Face, he decided to construct the Blue Mosque. Most of his predecessors, like in all empires, paid the architecture with the loot they acquired in war. But since Sultan Ahmed I lost his last battle, he had to take funds from the imperial treasury because he had no money. 
uh, this angered the Islamic ulama and jurists, but the Ottoman history says he went ahead anyway. The spoils of war were used as me- for many things, chief- chiefly to keep the masses conditioned with theology so that they kept submitting to their masters. It paid for the lifestyle of the ulama, the monarchy, the harems, and all their extravagances. In reality, I doubt this would have ever happened, especially knowing that the mosque was built in seven years. What the Blue Mosque really is, is the Great Palace of Constantinople, formerly a large imperial Byzantine palace complex located in the southern end of the peninsula, now known as Old Istanbul. It was the main royal palace of the Byzantine Empire from 330 AD to 1081 built by Roman Emperor Constantine I in between the Hippodrome and the Hagia Sophia. Um, due to costly maintenance and prolonged war of its, with its neighbors, the Byzantine Empire slowly crumbled to dust. The palace fell into despair in the 13th century itself. When Constantinople was captured by Mehmed II in 1453, the palace was abandoned but still standing. A blue mosque is said to be built on the foundations of the old palace. Now one cannot build a new building using foundations of the old. Your beams and structures have to be dug well in the ground, especially given that this is built along the sea, to the gr- so the ground would be very marshy. One would have to dig the foundations and rebuild from scratches, unless Sultan did not build the palace at all but just repaired the old structure and rebranded it with Islamic decor, all of which would not have taken place more than, for more than seven years. Anything more than repairs would take decades in the making. Just building the pillars of the mosque would be a gigantic task. Islam likes to add that they always use material and pillars from old structures, which was not possible. Pillars are beams which have to be built from scratch bringing the old palaces down, clearing the rubble, relaying the foundation, would require a fortune of less, of more than seven years. Um, so unfortunately, I don't think even the Blue Mosque was built by them. It's a previous con- uh, Byzantine structure. Mimar Sinan, now an, not an architectural mo- marvel, but known to be the greatest architect of the Ottoman Empire. He was the chief architect and civil engineer for the sultans Suleiman the Magnificent, Selim II, Murad III. His apprentices are said to have helped design the Taj Mahal. Oh my goodness gracious me, that's terrible. That never happened, fellas. Sorry about that. He was either an Armenian or Greek Christian Turk who was converted to Islam at a young age by the rulers of the time and made a janissary. He was the preferred engineer of his era on sanctioning of Solomon in the span of 50 years. Over a 40-year period, Mimar Sinan designed and built 360 monuments, depending who you ask, which included 84 major mosques, 51 small mosques or mesquites, 57 religious schools or madrasas, seven seminaries, 22 mausoleums, 17 care facilities, three asylums, seven aqueducts, 46 inns, 35 palaces and mansions, and 42 public baths. This means 7.2 monuments a year, which is not possible physically and logically to create. This is what apparently history says that Mimar Siman, the favorite architect of Suleiman the Magnificent, did. Uh, this is besides the fact you would need a huge investment, need a lot of specialized labor, and require a lot of equipment to build these structures. Remember the primary budget expense for any empire. Okay. Um is military, no different from what it is today. So how did he oversee all these projects? Remember the name, take it down, Mimar Sinan. Um, all in all, the Ottomans will take part 
in history. However, it has to be reviewed generations upon generations. Nothing it has put on paper makes sense. Remember what Muhammad said. You have to tell the truth, even in your li- if your life depends upon it. I hope the Ottoman descendants are listening. My dear friends, that was the Ottoman Empire. We've spoken for 60 minutes. I thank you so much for your time and for listening. I hope you've taken down notes. You can go back and listen. Um, share it with your friends. Have that conversation Understand the history behind it, the Atwa, all that lies in between. Uh, that is what Atwa means. Understand the currents that form our waves. These people were the cousins of the Mughals in, on the, on, 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 in India. And like the Mughals, they plagiarized a lot of monuments, which was normal for its time. And every empire did it. It's just that now they're saying they built it and it's so great a civilization. It was not their civilization. It was plagiarized. Um, and it's important for you to know that, to understand that, and spread the news, have that conversation with at least five people, ask them to have a conversation, and have them continue that change, and, and all that lies in between. So thank you so much for your time. I hope you have a great evening. Heal, gain the knowledge, heal, stay together, and stay safe. Thank you so much for your time. Good night.